South Dakota has a new one book. We will welcome the author from SDPB. It's Thursday, February 15th, and this is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, Trent Presler joins us. His memoir is called Little and Often. It's the story of his fractured relationship with his father and how a box of tools given to Trent after his father died became a path to getting to know the man who could never say in words that he loved his son. We'll hear two doctors discussing abortion rights legislation in Pierre in their own words. That's coming up after the news. Plus, a student athlete laces up for the team and also to understand how her brain works and how to make it work for her benefit. That's coming later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Last week, the House State Affairs Committee was considering a resolution to oppose an abortion rights ballot measure. Now, that ballot measure in question would let voters opt for a constitutional change regarding abortion access in the state. It would let all abortion decisions fall to the pregnant person during the first trimester. In the second trimester, the state could regulate abortions based on health reasons of the pregnant patient. And in the third trimester, the state could prohibit abortion except when medically necessary. During the debate, two OBGYN providers testified on opposite sides of the issue. Good morning, Mr. Chairman, members of the committee. My name is Dr. Patty Giebink. I'm an OB doctor. I've been delivering babies for over 30 years. Also, in 1995, 96, and 97, I was hired by Planned Parenthood to do abortions. I'm here to tell you that abortion is an invasive procedure that has significant risks. Chemical abortion has a significant failure rate. So by eliminating any regulations in the first trimester, which is the first third, approximately 13 weeks of pregnancy, that removes any protections for South Dakota women. And what is to, pre what is to prevent unscrupulous people from coming into South Dakota and setting up a, a clinic and making a lot of money. For 10 years, I've been on the board of directors at the Alpha Center. And this has provided me an opportunity to meet many women who have been hurt by abortion, many women who are considering abortion. And most of the women who are considering abortion really don't want to have an abortion. What they need is help. They need resources. So abortion hurts women. We need to protect the women of South Dakota by not letting uh, a law into the Constitution of the state of South Dakota that would allow unregulated abortion in the first trimester. That, to me, is a travesty of health care. And you need to protect South Dakota, the South Dakota women by voting for this bill. And I thank you very much. This is now the time for opponent testimony on House Concurrent Resolution 6008. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Dr. Katherine Dagan. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak with you today regarding my opposition to House Resolution 6008. I'm Dr. Katherine Dagan. I grew up in Spearfish, attending USD for both college and medical school. I'm a South Dakota woman representing South Dakota women. 
Honestly, I hate abortion, but it is a necessary medical procedure until we live in a world without unintended pregnancies, rape, incest, and lethal fetal anomalies. A procedure that allows patients and physicians, note that, to determine the best, the safest way to care for a pregnant woman or a girl. This is a proven safe procedure with actually a less than 2% complication and failure rate, while pregnancy itself has a 9 to 10% complication rate. Pregnancy is more dangerous than abortion, a risk that should only be willingly undertaken. Women in South Dakota deserve this freedom to decide what is right for their own bodies. There are so many nuances in medicine that simply cannot be legislated for. This is what I ask of you is to trust us. There are so many gray zones that there's simply no way to create safe, effective laws to account for all of these scenarios. This is severely limiting my and my colleagues' ability to care for our patients. Women need access to abortion. They're not using it for just birth control. My exam room should only contain patients, families, and doctors. And quite frankly, with all of you inserting yourselves, it's getting a bit crowded. I believe that access to safe abortion should only be controlled by patients' desires, not governing bodies. I acknowledge that not everyone feels this way. However, this is not for anyone to decide. South Dakota has a long-standing history of celebrating freedom of individual citizens. Legislating abortion bans is contrary to that proud history. Trust your citizens, please. Trust your, trust your doctors to guide women to make their own decisions. Thank you. Don't take away our freedoms. Are there any committee questions? Representative Rayfeld. Hi, Dr. Deegan. Yes, so sorry. I'm, I have a question for you just about some of the health pieces that are in the constitutional amendment. To me, it tells me that there you can't regulate at all whatsoever are you reading that the same that you know a woman would be able to get an abortion without any provider without any safety standards is that how you read that or is that D your understanding dr no, deegan because we as abortion providers have very strict rules and regulations within our own code of ethics and as physicians that would be performing these procedures they're regulated internally and it does not need to be regulated legislatively it's regulated by other entities that we must follow so you're saying that the regulation would take place with yourself rather than safety standards that are brought upon by other professional experts no they would be regulated by professional experts there's standards of care that we all must follow but they are made by other physicians not non-physicians mr chair I have a follow-up then the doctor from um the doctor, I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce your name. Gibang? Gibit? Thank you, doctor. I'd like to ask your interpretation of the same language. It does not allow for any protections for women. There's no regulations on the clinic, the doctor, the provider, that uh, there are no protections. Like the protections prior to the ban that had numerous protections. Representative Healy. I ask a question to um, Dr. Deegan. There's been a lot of discussion about when the government can interfere and when they can't or when they need to regulate. So my question for you is, re depending on the trimester, can you walk through your decision-making process and when it's appropriate for an abortion to take place? Like I said previously, there's so many ifs, ands, or buts with medicine. You just simply can't legislate for this. It's such a nuanced and every person and every pregnancy and every baby is individual and unique. And by no means do I want anybody to think that I'm out there to kill babies. I'm out there to keep women safe. Um, the, with the trimester issue, 
if, and this is my personal practice, if a woman has a pregnancy complication that forces us to either induce her labor before viability or at the cusp of viability, which happens not infrequently um, for various reasons, um, we have a discussion with the mother, with the parents, with the families, and with our NICU team, the neonatal um, resuscitative team, what the odds of this baby's chances of survival are, what their quality of life is going to be, which is a huge aspect to this that no one is bringing up. And um, we make the best decision together as a group of people in that moment. Um, it's just simply something that you guys cannot account for. And I appreciate that you're trying to keep women and babies safe, but there's so many nuances that by you trying to regulate this, it really truly does inhibit our ability to care for women in the safest, most appropriate way for each individual human. Representative Rayfeld. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I have a follow-up for Dr. Deegan. Dr. Deegan, are you aware of the definition of abortion in our state statute and what that is? I'm honestly not. I am just a physician, not anything political. Okay, well, I'm just going to just follow up with you and tell you that the, the definition of abortion in our language is the intentional termination of life within the uterus. So now knowing that, do you believe that an, an induction would be an abortion? Yes, because very frequently these babies die while being induced. And so therefore the, their life is terminated in the process of labor induction. And that would be an intentional act to terminate the life within the uterus? Yes, because I'm placing the mother's life ahead of this very viable baby. Thank you. Representative Hansen. I would ask Dr. Giebink similar questioning. Uh, the importance of uh, regulations when it comes to protecting the health and safety of mothers in our state. I want to make a very important distinction. The distinction is, as Representative Rayfeld pointed out, that in our Constitution, and maybe I'll just say elective abortions, entire goal is to terminate the life of the fetus or baby, whatever you want to say. That is the intent. So, okay, I've been in, I've, I've done abortions, I've taken care of high-risk pregnant women, and I wanna make the distinction that when you have a pregnant woman who has a complication, it is not the intention to kill the baby. The intention for any OB is to have two healthy patients delivered. If, if it becomes necessary for a mother's, mother's condition, we're ta not talking about these fatal fetal anomalies, the mother's condition, which I've had patients in labor. I've been overseas to third world countries that don't have health care, and I've seen all these complications in their most extreme form. And always, as a medical doctor, I take care of the patient. And this South Dakota trigger ban does not bind my hands. It doesn't tell me that I can't take care of a miscarriage or an ectopic or you know, a pregnancy complication. In no way does that. And I think that one of the things that we need to do is clarify with doctors that their hands are not tied with the trigger ban. We will now close public testimony and move on to committee discussion and or action on Representative Rayfeld. I move HCR 6008 to the floor with a DuPass recommendation. 
Well, next, the South Dakota One Book gives readers from all corners of the state the opportunity to share a good book and a good discussion together. A new book is chosen every year by the South Dakota Humanities Council, and this year the selection is called Little and Often, and the author is Trent Presler. He's joining us in just a few minutes, but first, Jennifer Widman is the Center for the Book Director, and she is Interim Executive Director at the South Dakota Humanities Council. She's joining us now on the phone. Jennifer, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Hi, Lori. Good to talk with you. This book I had not heard of, which I am surprised about, <laughs> since it has such a, uh, I mean, it's a South Dakota story. It's a South Dakota um, memoir, but it's gotten a lot of national attention, even though I didn't see it. So where did you first hear that this book was on the market? You know, I think when it came out in 2021, yeah. I had heard some inklings about it. Um, and of course, in 2021, we were, <laughs> we were still busy. <laughs> uh, in a little bit more of an in-depth part of the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, Trent Presler, the author, wasn't able to visit South Dakota as much as he would normally have hoped. Yeah. Um, and so it flew under the radar for quite a while. But I, I read it, I think, in early 2022 and just thought it was a really incredibly beautiful story. It's a sad story in some ways, but it's also the story of overcoming grief through working with your hands, through having a creative outlet, and through, you know, looking back on relationships um, that might have been difficult, but that had love at the core. Yeah. What are you looking for when you look for a good one book? Because you're kind of picking a book for people with all kinds of backgrounds in all parts of the state. And what makes a good one book? Well, the number one criteria that we always have in mind is simply that it needs to be rich with topics and experiences for discussion. Um, these can be, you know, scientific, historical, personal, but we want it to be something that we think a group of people, South Dakotans, regardless of whether their experiences have been similar to the author's, regardless of whether they might agree or disagree with the author, that they can really sink their teeth into some of these ideas and say, oh, I knew someone who had an experience like this, or, oh, this makes mm -hmm. me think differently about, you know, an issue that I had, had previously not thought very deeply about. Um, so the number one thing is always, is it something that people can really spend time reflecting about and discussing? Yeah, I think you found it here. As I was <laughs> reading certain parts, I would walk into the newsroom and I would just read, you know, paragraphs out loud to people. And, and then we would talk about it. And I walk out and be like, I, I, haven't, I haven't made up my mind about that scene yet. And then I would come back the next day and say, OK, here's what I thought. So maybe it was even a little annoying. But to that point, <laughs> there is so much in here to talk about. And there's this one beautiful idea here, which I think listeners who haven't read the book or haven't seen it could be thinking about already which is this idea of how do you tell someone that you love them? Um, yeah. Because Trent Presler's father didn't say those words. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's one of the themes that will be woven throughout this book. And I think for a lot of South Dakotans, they can relate to that. Maybe they didn't hear that from their parents. Maybe they have a hard time saying that to the people that they love. How do you express love 
to the people who are closest to you. Just that alone, you could have coffee over. (laughs) (laughs) I I think that's absolutely true. And, uh, you know, family relationships are complicated, even in the very best of families. And then when there are additional challenges, for instance, Trent Pressler was growing up gay on a ranch in a very remote part of South Dakota with a father who was sort of the epitome of traditional masculinity, you know, a rancher, a rodeo champion, a Vietnam War vet, medal recipient, you know, that adds layers upon layers of potential conflict. And yet there is love there. It just takes a lot of looking to see it. What do you want people to know about programming that will come up this year and how they can connect with, you know, getting the books for their book group, um, help us understand for people who are new to the One Book Program, the opportunities that this brings? Well, if you go to our website, sdhumanities.org, you will find a tab for the One Book South Dakota And there you will find information about how you can borrow a set of books from the Humanities Council. We will send those to you, however many you need for your group. If you want, you can also apply to have one of our scholars lead your discussion. Uh, if, If not, you can have someone within your group lead it. But that's the core of the program is having as many of those discussions around the state as possible. But also uh, keep in mind and keep an eye out on that website again for Trent Presler coming to the state in late June and very early July. He's going to be visiting several different communities. So it's a chance to meet him and ask him your questions in person. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, he will also be at the South Dakota Festival of Books this September in Brookings. Wonderful. Is there something that you took away personally from this book that you want to share with listeners today? What did it mean to you? You know, I found it just a really fascinating contrast, I think, between the two settings that he discusses, mm-hmm. uh, the the northwestern South Dakota, you know, wide open spaces and the beauty of Long Island and the water that he's looking out to. And I'm a sucker for descriptions of the plains and the prairie grass that, you know, are, picture them as ocean waves. And he kind of p- braids those two things together as two places that he loved and was shaped by. And, you know, that just brings me back to the idea that we're all shaped by our place in good and bad ways, um, but we can come to appreciate what that was. And you can tell he's from South Dakota because he doesn't fall into those cliches of so many times that are foisted upon us by other people Mm -hmm. who think they can write about this place. (laughs) Yes, so exactly. you're in good hands uh, with the text as well. Jennifer Woodman, thank you so much. Great selection. We'll talk to you in the future about it as well. Sounds great. Thank you, Lori. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, before the break, we heard about the selection process for the 2024 South Dakota One Book Now we get to hear from the author. Trent Presler's memoir, Little and Often, documents a year in his life and all the memories that led up to that year. It's the year his estranged father died. And the book bridges two communities, the ranch where Trent grew up near Faith and the home he made for himself as an adult um, in Long Island, New York. During that year, he was processing some really complex feelings of grief and he built a canoe. Trent Presler joins us on the phone now. Trent, hello. Welcome to In the Moment. 
Hi, Lori. Thanks so much for having me. I was just talking to Jennifer, and we're going over all the different ways that readers in South Dakota will connect with your story. And one of the things I'd like to bring up first for listeners is your childhood is the backdrop of the farm crisis, and your Mm -hmm. family will lose the ranch to foreclosure with the bank. Your dad's a Vietnam veteran, so there's the backdrop of that political um, navigating of that journey. So how much of your parenting, (laughs) the way you were parenting, was really impacted and defined by the intensity of the farm crisis Mm -hmm. and your father's legacy of combat in in Vietnam, which you didn't know much about when you were growing up. So let's let's start there. Yeah, sure. Well, I think as with um, probably a lot of veterans, they're hesitant to talk about their experiences uh, when they return. And certainly I didn't know, uh, no one in my family knew that my father had received a Bronze Star Medal when he was in Vietnam until after he died and we opened this shoebox that he had taped shut in the basement and, and found it. And, you know, to some extent, maybe he wasn't proud of what he did to earn the Bronze Star, but um, uh, knowing it and kind of seeing that be revealed was the beginning of a journey for me to try to understand him a little bit better um, and our relationship, even though he had already passed. And certainly the farm crisis and what was going on in America and in South Dakota and in in farming in the late 80s, early 90s, I guess was all a crucible for both my evolution as a young man, but also um, I think the intense experiences that my family were going through and the things that we were juggling. Um, I also have a sister who uh, had a debilitating disease and a degenerative condition that my parents were dealing with at the same time as trying to keep the keep the ranch afloat so yeah yeah I want to be you know empathetic to a man I didn't know my dad also Vietnam veteran he actually died the same year your dad died at the exact same age that your dad died in so we'll have lots to talk about when you come to South Dakota so you know empathy for the damage that you know was inflicted upon um, um, these these combat veterans in particular and yet it's it's hard to read some of the ways that he behaved and and not feel critical of some of the choices mm-hmm. that he made. Um, he, he had a hard to, he didn't say, he, he couldn't say he loved you. Um, that was mm-hmm. very difficult for him, but he did say many things that were incredibly hurtful um, to yeah. you. Specifically, um, when you come out to him as a gay man, this is not something he can accept into his life at all. What did he say yeah. to you? Well, Essentially, there's just um, kind of a shutdown. We're just not going to talk about that. And, um, you know, my family was and I think still is uh, quite, quite religious. And that their faith, I think, um, sort of took precedence over the reality of me standing right in front of them. And so a big part of my journey was trying to understand that and wrap my head around how, um, you know, the person who I knew I always was, was also the kind of person that is not welcome in certain places and in certain communities, uh, both in South Dakota, but, you know, elsewhere too, around the country and around the world. Um, And I don't think I knew 
growing up or knew in the moment maybe how both dangerous it was to be gay, but also that being gay is kind of what saved my life. Mm-hmm. Um, because I had to get out of South Dakota. I had to leave. Like, I didn't have a home there. I was not accepted there. Um, and so, you know, going for me, going to college and moving out east to New York was, was an escape in some ways and allowed me to really flourish um, sort of outside the oppression of being told that who I am is fundamentally somehow um, flawed. You also find there are times when you don't quite fit into uh, Manhattan, Long Island, you know, the New York place that you live. People have a hard time understanding, you know, uh, what your dad killed a rattlesnake with a, a, a bullwhip when the snake was about to like, is that a real thing? Did you just make that up, Trent? And so you have these stories that really happen to you that anybody who lives here and does ranching can recognize, but to New Yorkers, they sound exotic and foreign. So did that, did that increase after your father's death, that feeling of sort of being unaccepted in both places, at least temporarily? Because yeah. when, when, you're, when you're kind of sequestering yourself in your house and not letting anybody in, that's where I went. I went to the point where, like, yeah. this is the moment where this man doesn't feel he belongs anywhere. Tell me about that, right. please. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think after your parents die, or certainly after my father died, I felt for the first time, um, I would say, alone. And I never had to, again, sort of confront or deal with um, with him or with fitting in in South Dakota. But at the same time, I'm st- I was still this South Dakota farm boy living in New York City in the Hamptons. And <laughs> You know, anytime I ever said that I grew up on a ranch and went to a one-room schoolhouse in South Dakota, in New York, you know, people just looked at me with a blank stare, like <laughs> they have no context <laughs> for understanding what that means. Yeah. Um, you know, but for anyone from South Dakota reading my book and hearing about the sort of the brutality of growing up on a ranch and how you're constantly confronted with death and, and, and really violence, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, people there might relate to it, but might not relate to some of the scenes from when I lived in New York City and go to parties where, you know, rubbing elbows with celebrities and whatnot. So there was this kind of purgatory, I think, that I didn't know how I fit in. I was like too too gay uh, to be in South Dakota, but too country to be in the city. Um, and it's sort of a dichotomy that I've, I've straddled and kind of struggled with my whole life. Yeah. After he dies, there's a box. It's his toolbox. He actually wants you to take it at Thanksgiving. You're not able to stop by and pick it up. And then he dies shortly after. So you you get this toolbox. After his death, you clean out your entire house, like empty, empty, empty. And you have this big space and this box of tools and a wood duck that's mounted on the wall. <laughs> and I just am dying to see this duck. And, and then you say, I'm going to make a canoe. And the absurdity of this speaks not only to the size of your grief, I think, mm-hmm, um, yeah. but to what you are about to embark on. What do you, when you look back on, on that particular slice of time and the decision that you made yeah. to build something <clears throat> and it's going to be a, a canoe, 
which you have zero experience building. Um, right. What were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, you hit it on the head with the word absurdity. Mm. It was kind of an absurd idea. But, you know, a step back is that we kind of walk through life and we collect random ephemera. And if you walk around someone's house and you see the things on the shelves that they keep and the books and their tools in the garage, um, you can kind of walk around them your whole life and not really give them a second thought. But then when someone dies and you go into their space and you think, this is all that's left, like this was all that's left of my father, these whatever memories I have of him and some photos and a few things like his toolbox and this taxidermy duck. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, my mom gave those to me and, and I drove back to New York after the funeral with these tools and this duck in my car kind of thinking, well, this is all I have of him. And what am I going to do with that? And there was this, um, I was living on the ocean at the time and there was this huge blizzard. Uh, we got like four feet of snow or something in the middle of February and yeah. the bay in front of my house froze over and I don't know, I wouldn't call it a, an epiphany, but I just felt somehow compelled to do something with his tools. He was always making stuff, always building things with his hands. My, my mom always said that my dad could build anything. And uh, so I thought, well, maybe if she could build anything, I can too. And um, <laughs> so <laughs> I decided to build a wooden canoe. And I had also just seen the last episode of Parks and Recreation yeah. uh, with Nick Offerman. And he <laughs> had built a wooden canoe <laughs> in that and paddled off into the sunset. And so... I yeah, decided to build a canoe and it, it, it was, you know, certainly looking back, I had no idea in the moment that it would change my life yeah. to the degree that, that it did. You know, at, at what point <laughs> at we're what, having this conversation. Yeah, at what point did you realize I'm writing a book? Or this could be mm. a movie, or this could because you mentioned Park and Rex, and then oh, when you're a kid, you see Muppets, Muppets in Manhattan, and you think, oh, God, New York looks like a cool place. So you're the kind of person who's tuned into story. Uh, you know, yeah. at a young age, you see a story and you see how it impacts. You know how it how it connects with you, and you're in the movie, yeah. you're in the TV show. Like I'm going to build a canoe. At what point did you realize you were in a story that could be turned into a book, but it was the story of your own making? Well, it wasn't until a couple of years later, to be honest. In the moment, I was completely unaware of the sort of poetic journey that I was experiencing. I was yeah. just in it to build this canoe. And I you know, had a singular focus. And even when I finished the canoe, you know, I kind of was like, okay, well, wow, I did that. I think mm -hmm. it's sometimes harder to see yourself in a narrative than you see other people, right? Mm -hmm. And so, to, uh, you know, some period of time went by, a couple of years, and this local beat reporter for a, a Long Island paper contacted me and said, I heard that you had built this canoe with, with your father's tools, and I, I'd love to come shoot some video and make a little short video about you. And um, So she did, and she ended up winning uh, a New York Emmy Award for this <laughs> kind of short documentary about, yeah. about my life. And that was when I sort of realized, oh, there is a story here, and it's a story that people might find somehow healing or that they might relate to. And yeah. then, you know, after the Emmys and everything, I kind of felt like a responsibility almost that I had to tell the story, that yeah. I had to get this out, and, and that maybe it could change people's lives. And um, so then I embarked on 
the next phase of the journey. <laughs> what is it going to be? Yeah, what is it going to be like? It's a beautiful book, by the way. It's just beautifully written and beautifully told. And I, I can so resonate with the, I did a fellowship uh, not too long ago. And as I was working through the application process, somebody had to tell me, you know, these things that are contradictory or the things that make mm-hmm. you interesting. Go ahead. You're leaning away from them. You're trying to make it seem like you don't have these contradictions. But that's the part I'm interested in. So tell me more about that. And that was the first time like somebody else has to come along mm-hmm. sometimes, especially if you're raised in the Midwest and taught, you know, not yeah. to think of yourself yeah. like that. Uh, all of a sudden somebody says, you know, right. what? that's the compelling thing. And there's something in there for other people if you're willing willing to share it. But I'm, yeah. I'm wondering, Trent, when you come to South Dakota and you do some tours and some communities, um, coming home is hard for you in the book. Mm. And yeah. now your life is here and, and the way you see your family is here. And you're going to be talking about this with readers. And is that a healing journey for you? Is that something that you're, you know, kind of pre-coping yeah. to like, how do I you know, armor up to have some of those conversations? How will you How will you enter the dialogue of the South Dakota yeah. One book with it being such a personal story? Well, I'm so honored to do the tour in South Dakota and to be chosen for the One book. I think it's marvelous. And, yeah. um, you know, I had quite a bit of, um, uh, I would say, struggle when the book came out dealing with the onslaught of readers, um, you know, letters and notes. I mean, I got thousands of notes from people and everyone would open up to me about their own father's death or about their own struggles with coming out or, or anything, you know, and, and for a while when the book first came out, it was, it was quite overwhelming because it almost felt like anytime I engaged someone in a conversation about it, that I was sort of re-traumatizing myself. Um, so I had to put up a few boundaries, um, and just start to kind of I guess, remove myself a little from it. And just when I have conversations with people and engage about the book, know that they want to engage with me on a personal level. And, and I shared my story, but now my story lives on its own in the world. And it is my story, but it kind of has a bigger purpose to serve now. So, mm. um, so I think it'll be wonderful talking to readers in South Dakota and hopefully with all the years that have passed and my experience talking about it, I won't, sort of feel like fresh wounds all the time, but it certainly will be a wonderful moment to sort of drive across the state again (laughs) under, (laughs) under much different circumstances. Yeah. um, You know, for something so wonderful as, as promoting my book. Yeah. Well, um, hopefully our paths will cross when you're here in South Dakota as well. I really look forward to that for listeners who just tuned in. The book is called Little and Often. It is the 2024 One Book South Dakota. It is a memoir, and our guest has been Trent Presler. I'm going to spell it for you because I know what you're thinking, but it's P-R-E-S-Z-L-E-R, Trent Presler. Thank you so much for being here. What a delight. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. University of Sioux Falls athlete Eva Stute trains about 15 hours each week with her track and field teammates. She does all that in addition to a full class load and study schedule, but the sophomore psychology major would never consider giving up the sport. That's because Eva lives with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. 
She says running helps her focus and improves her overall mental well-being. Laura Rohde and SDPB's Jordan Henderson bring us her story. A quiet mind allows Eva Stute to focus, and focus is important to a university student living with Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD. Multimedia producer Jordan Henderson and I follow Stute out of the training room and find a quieter place to sit down to visit so we can gain a better understanding. When I am reading a book or trying to read a book, I will be looking at the page and reading the same thing over and over again, but I'm also telling myself, focus in, like, you're reading right now. You're reading, you're reading, we're reading. Oh, we're reading. What's that word? And it's like, so it's constantly ha- or having to tell myself, like, focus, focus. But th- then all I'm focusing on is trying to focus and telling myself that I'm focusing rather than just focusing. So it's very, it's very distracting in itself. The ability to focus is not the only challenge ADHD presents. A lot of it is in my lack of time perception. So I have anxiety about being late, but I'm constantly late because I don't have any perception of time. And so I'd say that is probably my biggest battle is procrastination and lack of any time awareness whatsoever. Stute was 11 when she discovered running helped her. The high school coach encouraged her to join the team. Within the next couple of months of training, I we found out that I was I was feeling a lot happier a lot of the time. I was a lot easier to talk to. I was just a, a very much a nicer person to be around just in general, but on top of that, when school started, I We found that it was a lot easier for me to come home and focus on homework and get things done right away because of uh, just like I had all the extra energy that would normally be distracting to me. I didn't find myself getting up 15 times because I was just like so jittery and wanting to move around so much because I had gotten all of that out of my system, so I was able to sit down and actually focus. Clinical psychologist Mark Perrineau said along with plenty of sleep, exercise is recommended for individuals with ADHD. But those individuals that have ADHD, there's been research that says that, that aerobic exercise is, is very is helpful with um, lessening the symptoms of ADHD. Like it's, it's relevant like, like the importance of recess for kids, but especially kids with ADHD. You know, it's just good for them to get out and and use that energy and you know burn that energy, um, and then they can come back and, and and be more attentive in the classroom. Eva Stute was in third grade when a professional diagnosed her with ADHD, but even with a diagnosis, she said teachers treated her as though she was in control of her behaviors. In that same class, we both got our desks pushed to the side of the classroom, and she put tape on the floor and put our names on them, and said that we couldn't move or get up or do anything unless we had to go to the bathroom or sharpen our pencil and it was kind of it was that sort of thing where I did not I did not understand at the time and I didn't know up until the up until doing the senior project how much that impacted me 
um, emotionally and just my development in general. The disorder is just very, very misunderstood, especially in younger kids. To gain a better understanding of how her own brain worked, Stute chose ADHD as the focus of her senior high school research project. By learning about how her brain works, Stute says she began to heal from a negative self-image brought on by years of being misunderstood by teachers and peers. I mean, I cannot stress enough the importance of knowing and understanding how your brain works. I mean, when I cried tears of relief multiple, I mean, this is just like, it seems a little overkill, but I mean, when I was writing the first paper, I remember writing the first paper my junior year for my AP bio class, and about uh, ADHD, and I was talk. I was just was bouncing back and forth between my mom and I about the different things that I was finding, and we were just going through and, and being like, "Oh my gosh, like that makes so much sense now." Along with running, medication, and a better understanding of how ADHD impacts her brain and behaviors, Stute implements organizational and time management strategies. She ended her freshman year on the dean's list. Empowered by what she has learned, Eva Stute wants to help others. She plans to become a child psychologist. For South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lura Rohde. And Eva Stute is here with me in the Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. Well, hello, welcome. I love listening to that piece. It kind of makes me want to put my running shoes back on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and you know, that's usually not what people say, but I'm glad it some, makes you feel that way. <laughs> get some exercise. There's a whole lot in that story, but like any story, you have to cut it down to a certain, you know, size for the radio. So we thought we would invite you in, you know, for some more thoughts on this. And I want to begin with this idea of what what teachers were working with when they were working with you, what kind of training they had. They didn't always know how to handle, because you didn't know how to handle anything. What do you want to say about that, that time when everybody was trying to figure out, what do we do with some of the behavior that we're seeing in the classroom? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, one of the biggest issues that we ran into even when I was doing the especially when I was working on the senior project was it was so emotionally exhausting because we were all of these memories of things that had happened that we didn't realize how much it had actually affected like Mm -hmm. me and my family uh my mom and dad especially uh just because it was like we were so, we had no idea that we were federally protected. We had no idea that there were laws in place. At the time, my mom was sick when we went in with the official diagnosis and we were denied the 504 planner and IEP. And um, it was really hard to not direct all of that anger towards the teachers who were treating me differently. And we had to constantly remind ourselves that, it wasn't like, yes, they were the ones who made me feel different and made me feel separated from the rest of my peers, but it was the system, the, you know, the teachers that had taught them that failed 
that failed them, the the resource, the lack of resources, the lack mm -hmm. of information, the lack of training, and yeah. et cetera. The class size, the demands on their time, exactly. all these things. But you still had to process the, the grief, the sadness, the emotions that you didn't get to process when it was all eyes are on how do we solve this problem? How do we keep this girl in school? How do we help her, you know, be successful? Mm -hmm. You had to unpack that emotionally. And the project itself helped you do that. Yeah, very uh, much so. Did you think you were college bound? I, to be completely honest with you, my junior year of high school, like the spring of my junior year of high school, I was, I had talked to my guidance counselor a lot about it. And she said, you know, college isn't for everyone, but and at that point, I really didn't think that I was going to. But going into my senior year, looking at it a lot more, um, I really thought about it. That fall, I started applying just to, mm -hmm. you know, see what my options were. And then uh, when I started getting accepted, uh, in, and then in the spring when we did the senior project, I was like, this is, this is something that I need to do. Yeah. This is something that I want to do. Yeah. How long do you have to run before your brain calms down? <laughs> I'd say probably about three or four miles, yeah. give or take. Yeah. Yeah. It usually helps quite a bit. Yeah. I experienced that in my younger life, just with the normal stressors of the day, mm -hmm. with no other additional obstacles or burdens, I would start running and I would just every thought would go through, would race through my head. And then after the second or third mile, then it was like, okay, here is the clear space. This is the payoff from getting out and, and hitting the pavement again yeah. and again and again. For students who are listening, for parents who are listening now, and they think, hey, this story sounds familiar, this resonates, maybe this is me. What, what, uh, what kind of advice would you give you know, elementary school parents to kind of help figure out what the next step is for their kids? Talk to teachers. Uh, as parents, talk to teachers. Um, when after we got denied, um, like I said, we had no idea that we were federally protected. Um, and the years following that, my parents went in to every set of teachers after that and said, okay, this is, we have the paperwork here. This is what we're dealing with. We need to really touch base with each other consistently throughout the year, make sure that she's on top of things. And we're really like, they, my parents were the ones who floated my boat all the way through <laughs> grade school. And, um, you know, until I was able to kind of manage that on my own. And, um, after doing the senior project, I had, uh, it's, I'm from Custer originally. And yeah. so it's a very tight knit community and uh, everybody kind of knows everybody. And one of my mom's friends, actually, her son has ADHD, a very um, hyperactive, external kind of ADHD, sure. kind of class clown, jumping all over the walls, very hyperactive in the classroom. And um, it can be very distracting. He's gotten put in, uh, as far as I'm aware, he's gotten put in the padded rooms in the elementary school, and it just breaks my heart. Mm. Um, but she she came up to me after the senior project and she said, I, I mean, it was just like a random day that she just so happened to run into me. And she said, I can't tell you how thankful I am that we went and we watched your project because yeah. it, I have a really strong feeling that it's going to change his life. Mm -hmm. And 
I can't stress enough how important, like I said in the video, I can't stress how important it is to the power in knowing how your brain works in biohacking and nutrition. And so many people are getting misdiagnosed with things like autism and ADHD simply because of different dyes and things and food and things like that. There are so many different contributors and having, there's so much power in that knowledge. That knowledge. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're going to put this story up on our website, give you some links so you can find more information. But I just want to say to Eva, just the idea, I mean, I'll take that away. Know how your brain works, know how your brain works. And I think you're helping a lot of people by talking about it as the bright runner and uh, college athlete and student that you are. So thank you for being here with us today. Yeah. We appreciate your time. You can find that at sdpb.org slash news. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you from all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening. <laughs>